You are now listening to the Autoimmune Doc Podcast with Dr. Taylor Crick. Dr. Taylor is an expert in helping those suffering with autoimmune disease, and he himself has autoimmune disease. Autoimmunity is rampant today. The purpose of this podcast is to educate about the underlying causes and natural solutions to halt autoimmune disease progression. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. For more information from Dr. Taylor, visit www.autoimmuneeducationacademy.com. Without further ado, here's your host, Dr. Taylor Crick. What's up? This is Dr. Taylor Crick, and you are listening to the Autoimmune Doc Podcast. I love breaking down and teaching people uh, the underlying mechanisms that make people sick, the mechanisms behind autoimmunity, the mechanisms mechanisms behind chronic disease. I try to break those uh, you know, complex topics down into understandable and digestible, you know, metaphors and things like that, because I think that when you understand your mechanisms, the solutions then become obvious. I'll also say that I don't normally say in this show, one of my passions is, you know, teaching this information because first off, you know, it's not like you listen to this information and it doesn't mean that you want to come work with me. Usually the more you learn about this stuff, you know, most of my practice is full of people who are really, really knowledgeable on their mechanisms, but that you need help. I mean, people need help. But my number one goal is to help people solve their own health puzzles. So I do not like to tell people exactly what to do. I like to say, this is what's going on. Here's what you can do about it. And let them do that on their own. So the whole purpose of this entire podcast is to help you you know, take action on your own health journey. So today's topic of gut health, you know, just kind of general gut health, is so critically important. Now, gut health, most people today, most people especially listening to a podcast like this, know that gut health is just really, really important and that it's crucial and that it's a root cause of nearly everything. Um, and almost in a lot of the cases like that I see, it's almost like it's so simple that people aren't putting it as their number one priority. They're looking at their long COVID or their mold or their you know mast cell or something like that. But gut health is going to affect all of those things and vice versa. In fact, you know, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent because I got a lot of stuff to talk about, but there's a paper that I have right right next to me here that says looking at intestinal permeability as a diagnostic marker for mold toxicity. So it's like that's a downstream effect of mold toxicity. Gut inflammation will drive mast cell activation. I've got a paper right here that is so cool. And it's called Molecular Insights into SARS-CoV-2 Induced Alterations of the Gut-Brain Axis. So gut health is just so crucial to everything. I've talked about it in past episodes. So my main goal today was not to you know, repeat any, any info. So let me start with that. I'm going to link some old episodes. We've got an episode about like the best lab testing for gut health. That's still super relevant. Um, so go back. If you want to know next steps, if you want to know what you need to do about this, go back and listen to that episode. I also have some episodes about like how to eat for autoimmunity, um, some episodes about like why gluten is so bad and almost celiac, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So still really, really important. Um, I also have some videos on YouTube about gut health. But again, it's one of those things that I don't think I could possibly talk about too much. But I'd also want to repackage this in, in a you know different you know format, uh, a different title and things like that. So I'm not repeating 
old stuff. So today is really an overview. I wanted to talk about gut health this this month. You know, it's August 2022, depending on when you listen to this. But for this month, I'm going to focus on gut health. Excuse me. So today is going to be an overview, and and there's ten topics. I, I started writing these down in a notebook and just started get got to ten. You know, and it's the ten most important topics. Three of them are symptoms. The three most common symptoms, maybe besides heartburn, I guess you could throw that in there. Um, and then the next seven are all you know topics that are really important to understand. This is not you know, necessarily the structure of this podcast every time. But it's kind of working out that way that, you know, when I talk about toxicity, it's really, really important that you have a background on the most important topics within the the context of toxicity. And same thing with gut health today is a little bit of an overview, but then I'm going to go into some deeper episodes. Uh, I'm going to go into uh, one on parasites for sure. Because parasites is one of my topics today, but it needs its own uh, its own episode. It's a, a big topic. I'm going to go into one in gallbladder, which I think is another one. I wanted it to be kind of obscure things, not just like leaky gut and here's how you eat an autoimmune paleo diet, but gallbladder, uh, parasites, biofilms. I'm psyched about that one. I think the biofilms are really, really interesting when you understand about biofilms and especially in the microbiome. I mean, it's been said that the microbiome is one big biofilm. Um, and then I'm going to do another one that I think I just added that says, that's called gut health, what your symptoms tell me and what you need to do about them next. So I think that with gut health, you know, every symptom to somebody that does what I do, every single symptom means something to me. Sometimes that makes it hard to be friends with me, hard to hang out with me, ask my wife, you know, if somebody has you know, they're, they're chronically thirsty and they're peeing a lot. Like, oh, are they diabetic? You know, and, and I'm just kidding. But every symptom means something. But we tell our patients as we're going through a history, we want to we leave no stone unturned. And every symptom means something to me. It doesn't mean you have a disease or a diagnosis. But every single thing is like a little piece of evidence that goes into a bucket. And at the end, we just weigh all the buckets. So, you know, with your digest, digestive symptoms, does it mean that you have food sensitivities? You know, that's probably the most common thing that people come to me, like, and especially they used to, when they'd say, I want to do food sensitivity testing. And I'd say, well, that might not be the best uh, route to go, but what do your symptoms tell me? So those are going to be the next episode. So I'm about to get into these 10 things, but leave us a rating and a review or if you want to schedule a free 15-minute phone console with me. You know, I mentioned on one of the last episodes, very briefly, I said the word international, and we had like a handful of international phone calls. Uh, we do them over Zoom, but that did happen recently. So you can schedule a free 15-minute phone console with me. It could be a Zoom. I, I don't, you know, prefer to be phone for sure. But um, but yeah, you know, we still, uh, you know, do that. And we also accept new patients. You know, we're booked out. We've got a little bit of a waiting list. But see a lot of people with autoimmune conditions, with long COVID, with mold, or with mystery conditions where they've been to, you know, different doctors or even different alternative practitioners. Um, and then, you know, they, they, they want to work with me to see if they can solve their health puzzles. So you could do that. Or again, leave us a rating and a review. We love that. Or find me on Instagram. I just crossed the 10,000 mark. Uh, I think that's... Uh, a big deal. I just texted my wife. I said, where's my blue check mark? Uh, but I think that'll be coming soon. And yeah, follow me on Instagram, follow my YouTube channel. Uh, I'd like to do a few more YouTubes this month. Uh, I've really been slacking on that because I do a lot of the podcasts and see a lot of patients. But anyway, let's jump into it. So 
10 important topics for gut health. So the first three are symptoms. And I am, again, just going to rant on these. I do, uh, people really like it when I do big episodes like this. You know, there's a lot of info in them and I get good, you know, reviews and comments about them. But I also don't want it to get too long. This isn't meant to be a comprehensive lecture on gut health. That would take all day. And, you know, I often will do, you know, three-day seminars just on, on digestion and gut health. And, and today might turn into that. It is a pretty comprehensive lecture, but it's going to help you solve your gut puzzle or at least give you some ideas on that. So let's get going. So the three most common symptoms, diarrhea, constipation, and bloating. So let's start with those three symptoms. That because that's why a lot of people, you know, begin looking into gut health. Is obviously if you have digestive complaints, then your digestive symptom needs to be looked at. Now, a lot of these other things, you might not have any digestive complaints. So let's start with what does it mean to have no digestive complaints? Well, I think that having regular bowel movements daily, daily is a minimum. Now, if you're going twice a day, if you're going up to maybe three times a day, I would still call that within the normal limits. But people know when they're when they're you know their stool turns to be too watery or too diarrhea or there's no, there's undigested food or anything so here's what happens when that's the case if you have you know you eat some bad food that your body wants to get rid of your gut cells open up and your colon dumps water in there to flush things out so that's diarrhea but if you have chronic and consistent diarrhea, then it is a sign of an inflamed gut. I think the the first thing that I see when somebody has diarrhea, meaning they're going too often, is have they ever been diagnosed with IBS? Now, I don't give people that diagnosis, but a lot of people come to me like, oh yeah, I've been diagnosed with IBS, or I was diagnosed 20 years ago, or I was diagnosed 10 years ago. It's one of those diagnoses that they give out like, you know, parking tickets. It's just like, you want one, you want one, you want one. Um, they give it out pretty easily. And all it tells you is that your bowels are irritable. Thank you. I think you probably know that. But IBS meaning like gut inflammation. On the worser side, it could be IBD or inflammatory bowel disease. So Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis are typically have diarrhea or blood in the stool uh, as, as part of their you know, malnutrition as part of their um, you know, symptomatology with IBD. Another couple things that I think of with diarrhea is always with any of these things, you're going to hear me say dysbiosis a lot. In fact, it's number five. But dysbiosis just means an imbalance in good and bad bacteria. Now, I will tell you, if you have diarrhea and it's chronic and it's constant, probiotics are sometimes miraculous. I, I, I would say, well, I'll tell you, uh, one of the reasons I want to do this gut uh, you know, series is I, like gut stuff can sometimes be really easy to fix. And I've been seeing all these really complex patients. I was like, man, I'd like to get like a good old fashioned diarrhea case. Uh, but they're really easy to fix. I mean, a lot of times, you know, sometimes they're really tricky. If somebody has Crohn's or colitis, it is really, really tricky. There's a lot of immunology behind that. But in general, if people are rushing to the bathroom, if people, uh, you know, I had a patient one time, I tell, I've told this story several times recently, but she came in and she was like, I went to Costco. And I was like, so what? And she's like, remember, I don't go to Costco because the bathroom is too far away. So I hear that a lot. I had somebody recently, I got all kinds of PIMP stories, poop in my pants stories. Um, I had somebody recently, she was going for a run. And she was like, I got about a mile away from the house. And I realized I got to go. 
and this was in July, and she's like, then some stinking kid lit a firework and literally scared the crap out of me. She's like, and she was terrified. She was like, imagine she, you know, she lost control. She was like, imagine if this happened when I was, if I was running with my friends or if I was doing a race or something. Um, but anyway, I, I, I digress. But I think of that a lot with, with those cases of just what's going on in your gut. And generally, again, generally, you put people on probiotics, you put people on gut healing powders, you put people on an autoimmune anti-inflammatory diet, and they, and they tend to improve. A couple other things to think about with diarrhea is do you have hydrogen-based SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We're going to talk about this quite a bit. It is number eight on my list, SIBO. But if your bacteria produce hydrogen as a gas in your gut, first off, you're going to get bloated as, as the bloating. But if the gas is hydrogen, it's going to lead to diarrhea. And if the gas is methane, it's going to lead to constipation. So that's always something to consider. And a stool test is something to consider at any time with, with, with diarrhea. Um, leaky gut testing as well. All the tests that I talk about in that old episode, uh, you know, food sensitivities could be very, very relevant. Uh, leaky gut, looking at microbiome, all those things are really relevant. Um, and then the last thing to consider with diarrhea is that the mast cells and histamine are often a component. So we've got this just explosion of mast cell stuff. You know, first off, our knowledge is expanding of this, but we also literally do have an explosion of mast cell stuff with COVID and the uh, related interventions with that uh, trigger a lot of mast cell stuff. And with stress too, you know, we're just seeing an explosion of this, which is one of my specialties. But uh, histamine causes leaky gut, but histamine also tends to drive diarrhea. So if somebody has a stool test that like has a lot of Klebsiella or they have a lot of histamine foods that they react to, it's more likely to to, to cause loose stools rather than constipation. So that's number one, diarrhea. If you're going too often, you, you got to get that under control. You got to make sure you're hydrated properly and make sure that you're absorbing your water. You got to make sure you don't have a leaky gut or intestinal permeability. And you got to check your microbiome and just check general digestion. But just to touch on, on diarrhea, and maybe I won't do that other episode because I'm going through a lot of what are your symptoms tell me right now, I guess. Number two is constipation. So again, the, the two most common things, are you going too often or are you not going enough? You know, I keep saying that, but I think that heartburn is very, very common. But we're talking lower digestion, not as much stomach uh, in this episode. And even with autoimmunity, you know, leaky gut, things like that, we're talking more intestinal. But constipation. So a couple of things that I'm thinking with constipation that are different than diarrhea. I'm not thinking that your gut is just straight up inflamed. Although it is often damaged and it is often leaky, it's not just straight up inflamed in the same way as, as with IBS or, or IBD, irritable or inflammatory bowels. What I'm thinking with this is maybe, again, dysbiosis and methane. Methane being the producer, the predominant gas if somebody has bloating. Now, if somebody has bloating, I'm thinking more in the small intestine because that that gas gets produced in the like right in the middle and you can't burp it out the top, you can't fart it out the bottom, and you just feel pretty bloated. Um, so methane-dominant SIBO. Now, I'm going to talk in the SIBO section. Again, it's number eight about why I think SIBO testing is dumb, um, but uh, that's kind of what I'm thinking there. The other thing that I'm thinking big time with constipation, again, any dysbiosis, okay, any candida, any overgrowth, any undergrowth, really, I think with diarrhea, I'd be more likely to see undergrowth and more likely to see a need for probiotics. 
And with constipation, I would be more likely to see an overgrowth, too many things in the gut because the gut isn't moving and that helps neutralize or keep those bacteria populations under control. Every time the gut is moving, we're able to get rid of some of that old bacteria. And you just think of it that the more stagnant the gut is, the more that things are able to ferment and grow and just like, you know, more stuff grows in there. The other thing I think about with constipation, big time, big time, big time, is the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the gut-brain connection. And the vagus controls a, a, a considerable amount of motility, a considerable amount of digestion, motility being part of that, with the migrating motor complex. The vagus nerve um, you know, regulates what's called the migrating motor complex, which is the muscles of the gut doing what's called peristalsis and doing what's called a clean sweep of the gut. Every so often, every few hours when you haven't eaten, your muscles go through and do a clean sweep. And now that number, too, is different for everybody. But it's all pretty close. It's all within like two, three hours of, of not eating. But some people have a longer time and some people have a slower time. So for some people, they need to go longer between meals so that their body does this clean sweep where it kind of goes top to bottom and like sweeps through to make sure that nothing's been left behind. But the vagus nerve, so it controls motility. You want to be going often. You know, if you're not going often, and let's say we start doing all the right things for your gut, and that constipation does not fix, my number one concern is by far Parkinson's disease. So we do not want those areas of the brain degenerating. Um, and so, but the vagus also, though, controls stomach acid release. It controls bile release from the gallbladder. We're going to talk about these two in number five or number four, excuse me. We're getting there in just a sec. And it controls digestive enzymes. So if you have decreased vagal motor outflow from a decreased gut brain connection um, or different things like that, you know, you could have an injury, an anatomical injury to the vagus. You could have just over, over stress, you know, lack of sympath or over sympathetic and lack of parasympathetic tone. Um, but you can activate the vagus nerve. And I have an episode about that. I think it's episode 35 about the vagus nerve and autoimmunity and ways to activate that. But that's what I think about with constipation. Um, and then bloating, bloating, major, major symptom. Now, oftentimes got diarrhea and constipation, people, you know, they're, they're miserable, but when people get bloated, I mean, I've seen people where I'm like, uh, is this person suicidal? Because they are miserable from their indigestion and their bloating, and it's painful. Uh, but here's what I think. If somebody comes in and bloating is on their list, I'm thinking at first small intestine. Small intestine, and generally I'm thinking SIBO. Now, SIBO is a diagnosis, so let me be very clear on this. I'm not thinking that this person necessarily has a SIBO diagnosis. SIBO is also, like most diagnoses, like mast cell activation syndrome or chronic fatigue syndrome, they are legit diagnoses with diagnostic criteria, but they are also a spectrum. You could be tired and not have chronic fatigue and still have a problem, but you don't have chronic fatigue. You could have mast cell symptoms and allergies and things like that and not have mast cell activation syndrome. And you could have bloating and not have SIBO. I don't really care about SIBO, about the name, but that's exactly what I think of. So SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So when you have too many bacteria in your small intestine, it is a problem. So in the large intestine, I forget the the the, the numbers of, you know, 
area for this, but per, let's call it, you know, I forget again, I won't even say it, but let's say centimeter cubed or centimeter squared or something like that, you should have 10 to the 12th bacteria in your small gut per unit, some unit of measurement. In the small bowel, it's 10 to the second. So it's orders of magnitude, 10 orders of magnitude, less bacteria. And insanely, that's only 100 bacteria compared to, you know, whatever 10 to the 12th is. Um, So you should not have that much bacteria in your small intestine. Your small intestine is more designed for absorption. There's a lot of villi and microvilli that do a lot of vitamin and mineral absorption in that small intestine as your food's being broken down. And before it's really turned into poop or waste, we're doing a lot of absorption in that area. So when there become too many bacteria in that area, which can come from a myriad of reasons, like some I already mentioned, low stomach acid, low bile, low digestive enzymes, low motility, um, uh, oral contraceptives, you know, anything that wipes out, you know, changes the microbiome, um, you know, uh, lots and lots and lots of things. Um, but when you have too much bacteria in those areas, then they ferment certain foods. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself, so maybe I'll just save some time when we get to number eight. But it ferments those, and that's what I think of when I think of bloating, because then you get, what the way that I draw this for people, I'll draw a balloon in their belly. And they're like, yes, that's me. And I'm like, you can't burp it out, you can't fart it out. And they're like, yes, oh my gosh. Very common with something called FODMAP foods. The F in FODMAP stands for fermentable. So these are fermentable sugars and starches that, again, I'll talk about, and fibers that I'll talk about again in number eight, but they're fermentable. Um, and it could be SIBO, and it also could be CFO, you know, so bloating in general, talking about bloating still, could be SIBO and it could be CFO, but generally it's going to be digestion, like we need to get motility going properly. We need to get bile and acid and enzymes proper. We need, and then we need to avoid some of these fermentable foods, not because they are causing the problem. They're causing the pain. But while we heal the gut, we avoid these fermentable foods. So I will generally use like a low FODMAP diet. And, and let's say on average, two months. I'd say in a fast case, if somebody jumps in and they're like, boom, I'm avoiding all these FODMAPs and I'm taking all my supplements and I'm eating autoimmune paleo, uh, then uh, in one month, generally, they can start reintroducing FODMAPs. Now, that doesn't mean every single one of them. There's a lot of trial and error to FODMAPs, but they can start reintroducing those. So a lot of people will have bloating after they eat like healthy foods, like fermented foods, or uh, bone broth, you know, bad for SIBO, bad for SIBO, bad for SIBO, or fiber, great for the gut, so incredibly important for the gut, so necessary for the gut to eat your, you know, cauliflower and asparagus and Brussels sprouts and all the different veggies and things like that. Not good if you have SIBO. So I'll often have people go on a low fiber diet for 30 days just while we heal the gut. Then they're starting to reintroduce those. Then we'll get people back to like their what I consider a good long-term healthy diet, like a fiber-based paleo diet with a lot of protein, a lot of good fats, but a variety of different fibers for that gut bacteria variety. But anyway, that's bloating. So the top three symptoms, diarrhea, constipation, bloating. 
Now, the fourth topic is just general digestion, because before we get into leaky gut, it's just so often that we forget about digestion. All these things interconnect. I think that we're starting to understand that, hopefully, but all these things interconnect. Is like if you have poor digestion, meaning let's say you have poor vagal nerve tone, and so because of that, you have low stomach acid and low bile flow. Well, guess what? You're going to have SIBO. That SIBO is going to produce that gas like hydrogen or methane. Those gases are damaging to the gut. So they damage those microvilli that absorb all the stuff. They cause leaky gut. And a lot of people get not only bloating, they get fatigue, they get anxiety, they get autoimmune conditions, and they get hormonal imbalances. So all of these things are intimately connected. But I think that it's really important to know that just because like you do or don't have any food sensitivities doesn't really matter. All of these things matter. So digestion. First off, you need to chew your food. You also need to just slow down. I had a patient the other day, her and I have not even talked about this yet. And she was like, you know what I found is that like I'm doing, I'm eating in a hurry and I just need to, I forget what even she said. And I told her what I often have people do is take nine deep diaphragmatic breaths before eating. It feels sometimes like torture and nine breaths takes like, you know, 60 seconds, um, but it slows you down. This is also why people pray before a meal. I'm not saying that there's not, you know, uh, certainly some other advantages, uh, you know, with, with God and things, but even let's say you're looking at this purely from a scientific point of view, what you stop, you give gratitude, you give thanks, you're, you're grateful for what you have. You put your requests out to God, say, Hey, please help me. Please help my family. Please help my future. Please help my loved ones, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you dig into your meal. There's so much healing to be had in that. And again, I'm a Christian. I'm a huge fan of prayer, but there's also just purely from a scientific standpoint, there's such benefit to that. So with digestion, Let's talk about the, the components to that. So again, vagus nerve. Vagus nerve, vagus nerve, vagus nerve. You can activate the vagus nerve. You can stimulate the vagus nerve. You need good vagal motor outflow. That's the last thing I'll say about it, but it controls all of these. The next thing is stomach acid. Stomach acid is really, 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 really important. It can be too high or it can be too low. Too low is by far more common. But I would say, again, that with this slew of these mast cell-mediated things in the last several three years... It's, we're starting to see more high stomach acid. It used to be in general, I, I've gotten you know 50 people off of omeprazole by giving them stomach acid because generally if you don't have enough stomach acid, the valve at the bottom of your stomach will not open and then all of the acidic contents of your stomach sit in there and just churn around and then when you go to lay down at night, it's like still in your stomach and so it's like a delayed gastric emptying because of low stomach acid. So what do they give you? They give you an antacid but those are related to all kinds of problems now because you really, really need stomach acid. Stomach acid not only breaks down uh, proteins, keeps things like H. pylori and keeps certain infections from you know taking hold and residing in the stomach or lower, but it also, um, crap, what was I just going to say? You need stomach acid. Oh, shoot. I totally spaced on this. I do not remember what I was going to say. I was going somewhere. Uh, so you really, really, really need stomach acid. Oh, I remember. Gosh. It kickstarts, you know, a lot of these uh, north to south reactions are chain reactions. So if you don't have enough stomach acid, you're not going to release enough bile. 
you need acid, hydrochloric acid, pepsin to to trigger a lot of these reactions with you know uh, CCK and other enzymes that all feed off of each other. So it starts north to south. You got to chew your food. You got to think about your food. You got to be calm when you're eating your food. Um, you got you got to have a good salivary breakdown of your food. But then once it gets to the stomach, you need good stomach acid. Now mast cells are involved with this. A lot of people do not know this, but a lot of people know that. You know, H1 blockers, Zyrtec, um, Allegra, Claritin, those are H1 blockers and they're antihistamines. But uh, Tagamet, Pepsid, Zantac, I think those three are all H2 blockers in the gut. Those are antacid medications and they're histamine, antihistamine blockers in the gut. So there's absolutely a connection between mast cells, histamine, and stomach acid. So uh, very, very important. Now, There are two at-home tests that you can do for stomach acid. One is with sodium bicarbonate with baking soda. Um, And again, I'm I'm paraphrasing this. I have these documents. We share them with our patients all the time. With the sodium bicarbonate, you take like whatever it is, like a teaspoon of, of baking soda in water, you drink it, and you wait to see if you burp. And if you don't burp within five minutes, you got a problem. And again, I, I think that's correct because I'm going off the top of my head. The other test is pretty easy to remember. It's from the Institute for Functional Medicine. It's a pretty standard stomach acid challenge test. And you take one capsule of stomach acid, you see if you get a burning. If you don't, you take two the next meal, you take three the next meal, you keep going until you hit your tolerance level. The stomach acid that we take in the supplement form is nowhere near the amount that the body produces. So it's just to help out. But if you take it and you get a burning, it's a sign that you don't need it. I've had people, I usually tell people to stop after 12. So I've had people take 12 capsules of stomach acid. That's like 650 milligrams per capsule. So whatever the math is on that, you know, six, eight, 8,000 milligrams or something. Um, and, and still not have any burning. So that is a concern. That is a problem. And there's reasons for that. And and stomach acid can also be helped by stomach acid supplementation and also by B vitamins and and different things, sometimes ridding H. pylori because H. pylori can uh, suppress stomach acid as a defense mechanism or it, it can come back on track. It also does decline as we age. So just throwing that out there about stomach acid. Now, the next one's pancreatic enzymes. That's a hard one to know about. You know, 20 years ago, they would have said, oh, don't take pancreatic enzymes with your food. That's stupid. That's, you know, just health nut talk. And now there's commercials about EPI, endocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or exocrine, rather. Endocrine would be diabetes. Um, but exocrine pancreatic insufficiency is just, you need digestive enzymes. It's not, it shouldn't be a diagnosis. I think it is now, but you can measure this on labs. Um, with pancreatic elastase, so on stool tests. So I just did a stool test actually today, and the guy needed digestive enzymes. I did not put him on them because he needed so many other things. And I told him that, and I explained that to him, and I said, we're going to try to get this back on track without taking digestive enzymes, but we might add those in the future too. He just had some other urgent fires that absolutely had to be put out. Then the last one is bile. And this is, again, really interesting to understand the physiology of these because the common bile duct, which is like the hose from the gallbladder, it it meets up with the pancreatic duct. I think it's just called the pancreatic duct. And then they form the common bile duct. So the point is that 
if the end of this hose is clogged up, you're not going to get bile or enzymes. They come out of the same faucet. Uh, it's something called the sphincter of OD, which is under, you guessed it, vagus nerve control. So if your vagus doesn't you know, stimulate the sphincter of OD to relax and dump bile and, and enzymes in, then that is going to have an effect on your digestion and your breakdown of food and on the bacterial populations in your small intestine. So it's going to lead to more bacterial overgrowth because you have these poor digestive juices flowing. Or, you know, I don't know who, what group this is, or, you know, primal primals or what uh, kind of health coaching, but the digestive fire is, you know, popular on Instagram posts and stuff. I've never heard that before, but um, it makes sense, you know. So you want, you want that digestive fire. You want to be breaking your food down. The other thing with enzymes is your immune system does not respond to individual amino acid. It only responds to peptides, which is a link of amino acids together. So if your immune system responds to gluten or responds to dairy or whatever the case is that's a trigger, if that is broken down with good digestive enzymes, it can make it unrecognizable for your gut. Um, Bile can also be, or fat in the stool rather, can be tested again on a stool test with steatocrit, which is fat in the stool. Uh, the signs for digestive enzymes are going to be, you know, almost any kind of indigestion, any kind of undigested food in your stool. Um, almost any of the symptoms mentioned above, digestive enzymes could often help. You know, if you're looking for something to try th- that's not like labs and full protocol, go try some digestive enzymes. They're amazing. I, I've, you know, I've put many hundreds of people on digestive enzymes in the past. Uh, bile's a little more tricky. And stomach acid is, is a little more tricky too. You can still try it, but um, and you can also use apple cider vinegar, some other things to kind of support stomach acid as well. Um, then da, 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 and then the steatocrit um, is fat in the stool, or if you have floating stools or inability to digest fat, that's going to be more bile. So that's number four, digestion. Now we're getting into these you know deeper topics. I'd say number five is dysbiosis. Dysbiosis means imbalanced bacteria. Now, I'm keeping it big picture in here. You can have a million different types of, of low bacteria or imbalances, meaning some high, some low. You know, again, I just did a stool test where it was like kind of net zero. It's like his imbalance or his undergrowths outnumbered his overgrowths. So we're really using a, a gut protocol. Um, and we're going to use some probiotics, uh, um, some butyrate, some different things. Um, but it wasn't really like, oh, we need to pull weeds or we need to plant seeds. Now, generally with dysbiosis, I'm going to say low bacteria because if it's a, a lot of overgrowth, then I'm going to put that into the SIBO category, which is number eight, the overgrowth. But dysbiosis, I will see this very commonly with somebody that's very inflamed. Like I'll do their blood and their C-reactive protein might be eight. And then we look at their gut and they just have no good bacteria. So we need probiotics. They might have a history of stress. They might have a history of antibiotics. They might have a history of birth control. Um, obviously, antibiotics is going to wipe out your gut bacteria. So you want to make sure you're planting seeds. And I think that in general, taking probiotics is generally a good, healthy habit. You know, I give my kids probiotics. I'm also leery of overgrowths because I see a lot of overgrowths, but in general, taking probiotics to modulate the immune system, to modulate neurotransmitters is just absolutely crucial. You know, uh, So I think that probiotics is really the, the highlight 
you know, solution in this category, but it's dysbiosis. So sometimes I will see on a stool test that somebody's low, like in a whole category of bacteria, like their bacteroides or their firmicutes, which if you're just listening, it means nothing. The way that I describe this to people is that your gut microbiome is largely like a, a bipartisan system. It's two parties. There's Democrats and there's Republicans. Sometimes we got too many of one. Sometimes we got too many of the other but almost everybody falls into these two parties. And sometimes we'll see that one's higher, that one's low, and the other's not. Um, sometimes we'll also see that some bacteria are low, that like, a, like lactobacillus, which is just your, uh, some of the main probiotics, or clostridia. Now, clostridia is a, is a category in and of itself because clostridia metabolites could be high, but clostridia could be low. And it's a sign that you're just missing good beneficial bacteria. But clostridia also makes something called postbiotics, which is, is a whole nother topic. But so science found that probiotics were really good for us, right? You know, starting around 2000 and, you know, maybe before, but like the science was coming out in the early 2000s, like your gut health matters. You know, you think about a pediatrician telling you to take probiotics before the two, before 2000s, and that sounds crazy. Now it'd be almost uncommon for them not to. Um, so then we found out, okay, these probiotics are really important. Our gut health really matters. So then prebiotics started coming out. Like, and that's just fiber. That's a lot of diet stuff. But it's like, okay, we got to eat this fiber because it feeds these good bacteria. But then now we're finding that postbiotics is really why they're so great, why they're so good for us, because they make something called postbiotics like butyrate and acetate and propionate, butyrate being the keystone one. Um, but we will find that on a stool test with, with, with dysbiosis. The other thing with dysbiosis is LPS. LPS reactivity is so major. LPS is a major driver of inflammation. LPS is a major driver of brain stuff. LPS is associated with chronic fatigue syndrome. LPS is associated with anxiety. I've got a video on my YouTube channel, just a, a more recent one. It might be the most recent one called Mast Cells. LPS and anxiety. Um, but LPS, this is lipopolysaccharide and it comes from the cell walls of bacteria in the gut. So when you have dysbiosis, you get a lot of LPS. It's also like what drives a hangover from drinking and things. You know, you drink alcohol and your gut cells release a lot of LPS. So the next morning, Sunday morning, you feel like you got hit by a truck. If you blow in a, in a blood alcohol analyzer, you're probably a 0.0, unless you got hammed. <laughs> um, but you're probably a zero, but you still feel like crap. The alcohol is gone. The LPS isn't. That's kind of the, the souvenirs that the alcohol has, has left for you. Dysbiosis, imbalance in bacteria. That's number five. Number six is leaky gut. So again, if you have poor digestion, meaning low stomach acid, low bile, low enzymes, you're going to get dysbiosis. And if you have dysbiosis, you're going to get leaky gut. So leaky gut is something that, you know, is often oversimplified, but is also, you know, most people are accurate when they say that leaky gut's the gateway to autoimmunity and things like that. Uh, David Perlmutter says, how do you know if you have a leaky gut, if you have a vowel in your name? So most people have a leaky gut. The gut is always selectively permeable. That is a normal part of gut physiology. And I'll show people a graphic. You know, I wish I could show it on this, on this podcast, but it's from, uh, I don't know, like a gastroenterology journal. And it talks about the progression of gut permeability. So number one is normal permeability. 
Number two is like some more permeability. And on this picture, it shows that normal permeability could lead to tolerance, which is, or excuse me, normal permeability leads to tolerance. Then number two on the list, there's four of these. Number two on the list, which is increased permeability, it could lead to tolerance, meaning you might be fine, or it could lead to inflammation and autoimmunity, so you might not be fine. As you get to more progressed permeability, then it's going to lead to more inflammation. It's going to lead to food sensitivities. It's going to lead to autoimmune inflammation. It's going to lead to this immune upregulation um, and inflammatory response that, that leaky gut leads to. So there's two types of leaky gut. One's called paracellular and one's called transcellular. One goes between the cells which is a little bit better. They're both bad, but it's a little bit better. The other one goes like straight through the cells. When the cellular cytoskeleton has basically been completely destroyed. So those can both be tested. Uh, for one of them, we're looking for what's called tight junction proteins, antibodies to tight junction proteins like occludins and zonulins that would indicate that, um, that your tight junctions have been broken. Now, zonulin just to touch on, is another thing that's commonly done in stool tests. I do not support it. I, I, you know, I, of course, it could be wrong. But from what I've seen, zonulin is a dynamic marker all the time. It's always fluctuating. Sometimes it's high in the morning. It's low in the evening. It's just fluctuating all the time. So it's very hard to get a reliable you know, elevation in zonulin. Just because you have elevated zonulin doesn't necessarily mean you have a leaky gut. But it's certainly going to be a piece of evidence that goes into that bucket. It certainly is not ruling it out. That's for dang sure. Um, but that's leaky gut. So occludins and zonulins, or if you're looking at the uh, like going right through the middle of the gut, then it's actomycin. Act, act, is it actino? It's acto. Actomycin. Actomycin, which is part of the cell wall, component of the cell wall um, of those enterocytes, of those gut cells. So leaky gut, very, very important. Now, so what do you do for leaky gut? Well, you, you fix dysbiosis. You fix digestion, and then you do things like postbiotics, glutathione, vitamin A, vitamin D, uh, turmeric. If the gut's inflamed, you know, fish oil, you know, these things to heal the gut, and the leaky gut tends to go away. But also glutamine. I mean, glutamine's really, really important, but you can change permeability. It can sometimes take three to six months, but you can absolutely change intestinal permeability um, and make it go the other direction, make it less permeable. Number seven is food sensitivities. So again, if you have poor digestion, then you're going to have dysbiosis, then you're going to have leaky gut, number six, then leaky gut is going to lead to food sensitivities. And food sensitivities, the reason these are important is because they can drive inflammation. They can drive T-cell-mediated tissue damage and autoimmune reactivity. So if that's attacking your joints, it's going to be rheumatoid arthritis. If it's attacking your thyroid, that's going to be Hashimoto's. If it's attacking your brain, that's MS. But it leads to a heightened state, a heightened inflammatory baseline. Just in general, more T-cell-mediated inflammation, more tissue cross-reactivity. Generally, when we talk about food sensitivities, we're talking about IgG. IgG. Now, if anybody's interested, I think I did a whole episode about this. I think I did a whole podcast about food sensitivities. And I have an entire journal article, uh, entire journal 
issue that I'll share with anybody if you ask me for it. It's the entire journal, and the entire journal is about food sensitivities. And the entire journal is written by Dr. Vijadani, uh, one of my mentors in this space. So, you know, if you want to look at the science behind this, there's plenty out there. But IgG is what we're talking about. You can also test IgA, and that's more in the gut. IgA is the main defender in the gut, but that's going to cause more gut inflammation. IgG can inflame your entire body. So gut inflammation drives body inflammation, drives brain inflammation. So that's food sensitivities. I have a lot of content about this. I am a huge fan of Cyrex. I will occasionally do a finger prick blood spot food sensitivity test like on a kid. I do not think that they are nearly as reliable. I think that for me, it's Cyrex or, or nothing. Um, and really, you know, I, I try to never say that about anything in my practice. But as I just get more discouraged by other labs and other things that I see, I just get a little more jaded of like, okay, if it's not Cyrex, then I'm, I'm, I, I, I question it. You know, a lot of people bring me food sensitivity tests. They've had it their OBGYN. They've had it their pediatrician, you know, whatever the case is. They've had it, you know, a chiropractor or something. Um, and, and it absolutely matters. But my practice is also filled with people who removing their food sensitivities did not fix their autoimmune condition or their inflammatory condition or their gut condition. It's important to know them. It's important to remove them. But it's oftentimes not the solution. So last three, eight, nine, and 10. These are gut infections. So those last ones, again, first three are symptoms, diarrhea, constipation, bloating. Then number four, five, six, seven, or let's call those more like root cause drivers um, and processes. You know, if you don't have good digestion, you're going to have dysbiosis. If you have dysbiosis, you're probably going to have poor digestion. If you have both of those, you're probably going to have leaky gut and you're probably going to have food sensitivity. So those four run together as as, uh, mechanisms. And just another mechanism might be infection. But we're going to talk about these three different infections. The first one being SIBO. The second one being candida, and the last one being parasites. And I'm going to try to go through these quick because I do like to keep these under an hour. So SIBO, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So again, there is SIBO breath testing. I think it's dumb. All it tells you is that, yeah, you have SIBO or you don't have SIBO. And do you have hydrogen or do you have methane? Well, guess what? I can pretty much figure that out. Are you constipated or do you have diarrhea? And if you, if you don't have bloating and you don't have constipation or diarrhea, I don't know why you'd be doing any SIBO testing in the first place. Do a stool test, learn about what's going on in your mi- microbiome. Again, sometimes in the conventional world, they get so hung up on wanting to put the diagnosis on it that they, you know, they just continue testing to see, can we confirm that this is SIBO? And they forget about treating the patient. I see a lot of patients who have been medically treated for SIBO and it does not work. It does not work it does not work. It's often antibiotics and it might work at the beginning, but it always comes roaring back because guess what? Taking antibiotics does not fix the underlying cause of the problem. Picture this. If you are a conventionally trained medical person and you think, oh, there's a bacteria infection, what are you trained to think is going to fix that? Antibiotics are going to kill off this infection. This is not something that you caught because somebody coughed on you, on your plane, this is something that is living and residing in your gut at all times, in your diet, you're eating all the time, your stress level. I mean, the, your microbiome builds over over time. You have 10 pounds of bacteria in your gut alone. This isn't something that can be fixed by a short-sighted 
uh, horribly inadequate intervention like antibiotics. I'm not even opposed to antibiotics in general. I, I am, actually. I shouldn't say that. But I think that antibiotics are kind of like guns. They can, they, they, they can be a problem if they're in the wrong hands, or they can be a lifesaver if they're in the right hands and they're used properly. So that's my SIBO little quick rant. I think SIBO testing is, is dumb. I think all the other things that, you, that I already talked about, you need stomach acid, you need bile, you need vagus motor outflow, you need to avoid FODMAPs. So FODMAP diet is often the most common for SIBO. Sometimes it's sugars, sometimes it's starches, Oftentimes, it's fibers. And again, it's oftentimes the things that are really, really good for the gut. So you go out and take a fiber supplement because you know, you're a little constipated and you're bloated. That's going to jack your gut up like none other. You go out and start drinking bone broth or eating fermented foods, that's going to jack your gut up. A lot of times, taking probiotics will jack these people's gut up so bad. And so they come to me after trying six things that all might be very, very, very good ideas for somebody else's gut, but not for SIBO. I also have a video about SIBO on my YouTube channel. I'll link it in the show notes. It's called All About Bloating. It's, it's, it's really good. I'm obviously biased, but I talk about all these topics and how they tie together. And I see great results with bloating um, and with, with SIBO or with that spectrum of, of you know, digestive complaints that feature bloating as a, as a feature. Uh, so that's number eight. That one is pretty quick. The next one is Candida. OMG. I think that again with SIBO, it is so short-sighted to think like, oh, it's bacteria. Let's take an antibiotic. Like, well, uh, that's dumb because th- then you're just going to allow the yeast to overgrow. So Candida, the single biggest thing that I see in my practice is Candida overgrowth, yeast overgrowth, so or mold or fungal overgrowth of other kinds. So first off, a stool test is not the most reliable for this. A lot of times they are completely negative. Um, I, in my opinion, the urinary organic acids test is. I also do blood antibodies. Those are not always positive by any means. You can have high candida and not have high blood antibodies. Blood antibodies come down the road. That's the case with anything, you know. So if anybody tells you that blood antibodies are the only way to diagnose something that that's not true, you know, I, I got in this argument with this uh, MD over the weekend. He's like seventy five probably, but we were going back and forth about toxic levels versus antibody responses because he was saying for 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 mold he likes to measure antibodies. And, and, but for heavy metals, he only likes to measure their quantities. And I was like, well, that's, they work the same way. So anyway, um, you can measure antibodies to candida. But I see it so commonly, and let's just leave it at that. It is uh, antibiotics. Again, they kill off the bacteria, and, and that allows the yeast to overgrow. It's like, mom's gone, let's have a party. Uh, sugar feeds yeast. So what do you think is a big problem in our uh, standard American diet? It's, it's sugar. I mean, certainly. Um, stress. Stress will lower secretory IgA. That could have been in the digestive category. Um, birth control. Mold exposure. And then candida drives inflammation in a lot of different ways. You could have, uh, and especially for me being uh, specialized in autoimmunity, talking about T-cells a lot. TH17 is autoimmune tissue damaging inflammation. And TH17 is an appropriate response for intestinal candida. So candida will drive tissue damaging autoimmune inflammation. Candida can also sometimes drive neutrophil infiltration uh, and sometimes drive TH2 inflammation, which means it's going to just decrease TH1, which is going to happen with TH17 also. But 
Candida, 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 and antifungals. Candida is also a fierce biofilm uh, producer. Uh, Candida produces toxins like acetaldehyde that damage the liver and can cause, you know, slow down methylation pathways. And I just, Candida, 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 I, I can't express how important it is. But antifungal herbs tend to be very effective. You don't need, uh, you know, some of the anti-yeast things. Again, I'm not a prescriber, but I think fluconazole and... Um, Nystatin, nystatin and fluconazole are probably the two anti-yeast. Um, you know, there's other things for anti-mold. Sometimes I'll see mold colonization with candida, like aspergillus colonization. But candida is often a part of any fungal thing. So SIBO often has its cousin CIFO. So we often want to take herbs that are broad spectrum to bacteria and to candida. That was number nine. Number 10, last one. Again, I'm going to do a whole other episode about it, but parasites. Parasites are crazy. I have seen amazing things when people parasite cleanse. It's also very controversial in the autoimmune world, meaning is it better to have parasites or to not have parasites? And I would say that for me, that completely depends because again, you know, I, I keep one foot in both of these worlds. One world is this natural world where you see all over Instagram people with parasite cleansing. And I had a patient text me today, said, I just did my first coffee enema and I think I saw a parasite. She's about to do a parasite full moon cleanse. And sometimes, again, the people that see me, they're, they're not coming to me because they're perfectly healthy, right? I don't know that a perfectly healthy person should do a parasite cleanse. They're coming to me because they have a list of sensitivities and elevated liver enzymes and you know things like that. They're often also not coming to me because they have diagnosed autoimmune conditions. I'd be very leery about parasite cleansing somebody with ulcerative colitis or you know uh, certainly Crohn's or something with especially like a Th1 Th2 mediated or especially certainly a, a gut a gut autoimmune disease. I don't think I would ever unless I had you know very very hard evidence. Uh, PBC, autoimmune hepatitis. Absolutely, I see them as a root cause of those sometimes. Um, I've seen people, I saw somebody diagnosed with, I I should take that back too because I'm going to tell this story. I had somebody diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, full-blown, you know, blood in his stool, losing weight, anemic, malabsorption. Went to his doc. He said, you got to go to a gastro. You got to get a colonoscopy. They go up in there and look and they say, you have ulcerative colitis. It's an autoimmune disease. You need to go on prednisone. And we don't know if you're going to have to be on it for the rest of your life. And he's like really discouraged and comes to me like, man, I, you know, I'm young. I'm fairly healthy. Like I didn't think this was going to be my future. And I looked at his labs and I just told him, you know, just I didn't, I didn't say like, hey, your gastroenterologist who did your colonoscopy is wrong. I said, yeah, this looks to me like this could be a parasitic infection. I found some case studies of misdiagnosed ulcerative colitis that was actually parasites. We put him on a parasite cleanse. This dude has never once come back. His wife and his daughter and his mom are all patients of mine. So I know that he's still doing really, really well. I just saw several of them last week. Um, and he never had a problem again. He's never once had a problem again. So uh, again, don't always listen to the first first answer, the first diagnosis. He could have easily started taking prednisone and then been on that the rest of his life. I've also seen people that were told that 20 years ago, and they started taking prednisone, and here we are 20 years later, and they're, they're a wreck, you know? So um, I don't know. It, it's just a crazy story and just some interesting things. So we will talk about that when I do a full episode. So again, I am, it doesn't really matter. I'm sure if I go 61 minutes, you'll stay tuned, but I'm trying to wrap this up before I hit an hour. So let's go back through these 10 things. The first three were symptoms, diarrhea, diarrhea, 
I often think of IBS, which again is a BS, no pun intended, a stupid name. Um, but it is a, an actual diagnosis that will be in people's file and people will tell me all the time I've been diagnosed with IBS. I often think of the mast cells and I often, I'm sometimes think of hydrogen SIBO, but I'm also often thinking of low microbiome, low gut bacteria, putting them on kind of a standard 5R gut healing protocol where we're giving them probiotics and we're maybe repairing the gut lining with glutamine and, and, you know, doing an anti-inflammatory diet and generally diarrhea, uh, you know, it, it improves. It's actually probably the easiest of these three. The next one is constipation. I'm off, often thinking dysbiosis, uh, overgrowth more likely, and vagus nerve of do you have enough stomach acid, do you have enough bile, do you have enough enzymes um, for constipation. Then bloating, I think of small intestine, overgrowth, and fermentation, um, avoiding FODMAPs. So those three, diarrhea, constipation, bloating. The next four are digestion, overall digestion. So stomach acid, it can be too high or too low. Pancreatic enzymes can be too low. Bile can be too low. Um, sometimes people can have bile dumping. That's a whole other thing. But in vagus nerve controls all those. Dysbiosis, which is imbalance in the bacteria, generally even a low bacteria need for certain types of probiotics. Or LPS that's going to come from dysbiosis that's massively inflammatory. Leaky gut is number six. So leaky gut, intestinal permeability, number six, can be paracellular, can be transcellular. Another thing worth mentioning with this really briefly is that the dendritic cells in it, that are immune cells in your gut that sample, they're all the time sampling the contents of your lumen. If there's a gut infection, those dendritic cells will send, there's a co-stimulatory signal. So let's say that a dendritic cell is sampling something like dairy. And in the presence of no gut infection, the immune system is going to be like, hey, this is dairy, it's fine. But if there's a gut infection, like an overgrowth, an undergrowth, a candida, a parasite, something like that, some kind of dysbiosis, if there's some kind of dysbiosis, then the immune system is going to give a co-stimulatory uh, signal. This is attack this food. So you're going to have more food sensitivities when you have more gut inflammation and more gut infections. So all these things... Uh, really, really interconnect. So that's dysbiosis. That's leaky gut. I forget what number I was on. Five is dysbiosis. Six is leaky gut. Seven is food sensitivities. I just mentioned that one. Eight is SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Remember, you're not supposed to have that many bacteria in your small intestine. You need to kill those bacteria, but you need to more likely think, why are they overgrown in the first place? Do I have low vagus activity? Do I have low immune function in the gut, low secretory IgA? Do I have slow motility? Uh, do, have I been on antibiotics recently? Or why do I have this overgrown bacteria? Um, and I think SIBO testing is dumb. And then SIBO often has its cousin CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth, which is most likely candida, the single biggest thing I see in the gut measure it on an organic acids metabolites rather than on a stool profile um, and rather than on blood uh, immunoglobulins either or antibodies. Um, I think that the organic acid is just so, so great for clostridium metabolites and candida metabolites and mold metabolites in the gut. Um, so clinically relevant too. I mean, so beneficial for so many people. Um, but antibiotics, sugar feeds it, stress kind of doesn't help you fight it. Birth control, mold, exposure, um, drives a TH17 response, 
drives more TH2 inflammation. Both of those shut down TH1, which allows for some other pathogen burdens and things like that. And, you know, the, the circle goes around. And then number 10, parasites. Parasites are crazy. That's all I keep saying. And make sure you listen to my episode on them because, man, I got some stories and they're so intriguing. And sometimes parasites are really hard to test for. Sometimes it's hard to really know. Um, but again, like the story that I mentioned, sometimes they're miracle changes. Um, but uh, it is controversial in the science world, in the immunology world. And people use helminth therapy. So people still use helminth therapy and swear by it. I mean, you eat parasites. You eat parasites. I, in fact, one of the stories at the seminar I was at this weekend was like this little girl was eating five and all her symptoms went away. And then it was like she flared or like her doc put her on something or told her she couldn't do them or something. And, and this is an MD that was sharing this. And then they went back to, uh, they had to go to 15. And once they went to 15 helminths a day, like I think she's eating the larvae. So you're not eating like the, the worm, you're eating the, the eggs. But when they went back to 15, it balanced her immune system. So parasites have a strong effect on the immune system. That's why sometimes they can eradicate autoimmunity. Um, so anyway, we just hit the one hour mark with my intro and my outro. It's going to be a little over. I was racing the clock, but if you stay tuned, stayed tuned, then thank you. Leave me a comment, leave me a rating, leave me a review, send this to somebody, send this to somebody, send this to somebody. Basically everybody, you know, needs to hear this information. That doesn't mean that everybody, you know, wants to, but anyone that's suffering wants to and is probably going to thank you. I get a lot of thanks. It is the most fulfilling part of my job. Even if somebody doesn't become my patient, it's almost more fulfilling to me when they just say, thank you. Your information really helped change my life or really helped guide me to my next steps. So share it, leave a rating, leave a review, stay tuned for the next couple. They won't be an hour. Um, but this was a big one and I knew that from the beginning. So talk to you guys next time.